0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share so we can find others like yourself. Bitcoinprosperitypodcast.com All
1: right, like if your eighth grade girlfriend who teaches piano lessons is asking about Bitcoin, it's, it's a bubble. And then it, then it went up to 7,000. And then um, my wife's best friend's 14-year-old son bought Bitcoin. And I was like, what is the world coming to? And it, was, it, turned, it turned into this giant bubble. And, you know, I don't, I don't participate in bubbles. I don't, maybe I should. Um, so my objection to it wasn't really the, the technology or the blockchain or anything like that. My objection was um, just, I, uh, just the fact that it was a, you know, it was, it was a speculative bubble, just like we, you know, like I'd seen in dot com, just like I'd seen with the housing bubble. Um, and then when prices started to come back down, then I started getting interested in it again.
0: Welcome to the Bitcoin Prosperity Podcast with your host, Gordon, that's me, and Ferris from CoinCompass.com, enabling you to safely buy and securely store your Bitcoins. All resources are in the show notes and description, including our full disclaimer. Visit BitcoinProsperityPodcast.com to subscribe and discover other free content. Oh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone, wherever you are listening or watching this. We have a very special guest today on the Bitcoin Prosperity Podcast. But before we get to him, the current block height is 628915 And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the current time according to the Bitcoin blockchain. And the current price of Bitcoin is 88, 88, uh, sorry, $8,854 according to Bitstamp. So I am out of the lockdown, Farris, at the beach. What is happening over in the bunker?
2: Hey, thanks Gordon. So yeah, for the rest of us not in blockchain time, Uh, for me it is the 5th of May, 4.15 a.m. in New Zealand. I'm out of my bunker and uh, we've been living in these isolation bubbles. And because I've been living alone, I've been allowed to extend my bubbles to some friends. So it's been nice to catch up with some people. Um, But yeah, I'm very excited to announce our next guest, uh, Jared Dillian of Daily Dirt Nap. Real pleasure to have you here, Jared. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, before we get into it, um, one thing I want to mention is yours is one of my favorite Twitter feeds to follow. Um, I know myself and a few other people, we tend to... um, uh probably puts a lot of thought and editing into our tweets before we put them out there. With your Twitter feed, I kind of get the impression, this is what I'm thinking, it's going up there.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, sometimes I get myself in trouble with that, but
2: uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty unfiltered. Well, I've got a confession to make about last year, I can't remember exactly when, but you almost blocked me on Twitter. And um, <laughs> reason being was you said, I think it was a Friday, um, post your unpopular opinion. And you posted something about James Bond and I responded, my unpopular opinion was that um, Daniel Craig is the worst Bond. And you said, them are blocking words. So I had to take it back. Oh, I was I was just kidding. <laughs> I, was just kidding. No, I wouldn't watch anybody for that, but... Um, no, no, I know you were. Yeah. So, yeah, for everyone out there at Daily DirtNet Twitter feed, that is um, yeah one of my favorite Twitter feeds to follow. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, it's
1: it's I guess I think it's an acquired taste. Uh, you know, there's the, you know, there's people that definitely have a lot more followers than me, but it's a uh, it's a loyal group.
2: Yeah. All right, Gortz, um, I'm going to let you fire with the first question for Jared.
0: Sure. Um, so I guess the, uh, the obvious question is, who is Jared Dillian? Or should I say, DJ Stochastic? <laughs>
2: um,
1: yeah, I do, I do a bunch of stuff. So uh, I started working in finance in 1999. I started as a clerk on the floor of the Pacific Coast Options Exchange out in San Francisco. And that was during the dot-com bubble, which was absolutely incredible. I got to see all that. Um, I was getting my MBA part-time from University of San Francisco, and then I got a job at Lehman. Started in 2001. Um, A lot of people don't know that Lehman's building was actually downtown for 9-11, so I was there for 9-11. I did index arbitrage for a few years, and then I ran the ETF trading desk from 2004 to 2008. It's kind of when ETFs were... Um, just you know, entering that period of growth. Um, after that, at the bankruptcy, I left and, and started my newsletter, the Daily Dirt Nap. I started in 2008. I wrote a book in 2011 called Street Freak: Money and Madness at Lehman Brothers. That was a, that was a very successful book. And then in 2016, I wrote a novel called All the Evil of This World. Uh, which is a little, you know, it was a less successful book, but actually I'm very proud of that one. And I write for Malden Economics. I write editorials at Bloomberg. I've also written for Forbes and thestreet.com. And like you said, uh, in my spare time, I'm a progressive house DJ. And I, I don't do it a lot, but I have like four or five gigs a year. And a lot of music on SoundCloud, MixCloud, and stuff like that. So especially during the, uh, during the lockdown, I've been, I've been posting a lot of music for people to listen to. So.
0: Wow. I mean, sorry, before Faris gets onto his uh, economic questions, just one more question perhaps. I mean, where to begin? You've got such a colorful life, but you also uh, work for the Coast Guard as well.
1: Yeah. Before, um, before all that, uh, I went to the Coast Guard Academy, and I uh, was in the service for five years. Uh, I left as a lieutenant. I had a couple years on a ship at a Washington state, and then um, I spent a few years working in intelligence. Um, so, yeah, that's it was uh, it was a good exp- it was a good it was a good
2: experience. It was it was a good start. Sounds like you've had Magnum Pi's life.
1: <laughs> it's been pretty cool. It's a, it's not, you know. Oh, the thing that the thing that I left out is um, nine months ago, I started a nationally syndicated radio show called the Jared Dillian Show, which focuses on mostly on personal finance. Um, so I've been doing that for almost a year now, and that's that's growing very slowly, and it's a lot of work, but uh, I'm hoping that's going to pay off someday
0: feel cool. free to plug that uh, I listened to a couple of episodes you do you want to plug that and how perhaps people can get involved or call in or
1: yeah if you can you can stream it if, if um, I you know I'm live 6 to 8 p.m. Monday through Friday that's Eastern time and you can go to JaredillionMoney.com and you can stream the radio show and you can call in um, so yeah I'm on every night
0: and what kind of questions are you looking for
1: Oh, just, be, just basic stuff like the basics of investing, saving, credit cards, mortgages, car loans, stuff like that.
2: Um, Jared, before we get into Bitcoin, you just raised something in the back of my mind here. Um, yeah, post-2008, a book I read was, I'm trying to remember this correctly, I think William Cohen, House of Cards. Yeah, it was a play-by-play if you had Bear Stearns and you, the book you just mentioned. And I think recently in an interview with Grant Williams, you um, talked about, how how do I put this delicately, probably the ineptitude or inefficiencies within governments and how certain conspiracies just can't happen because you just need too many people moving too many parts at once. And that book by William Cohen kind of, to me, frightened me because it was like, does anyone really know what's going on here? Um, So, yeah, I suppose we'll jump ahead to... um, a lot of moving parts in the global economy right now. Um, a lot of you know things being uncovered underneath the rug. How concerned should we be that there are people out there that know what they're doing, know what's going on? I'm taking, for example, what's happening in a repo market, um, sovereign debt, all these things. Or is it people are just scrambling at the moment?
1: Um, well, I, what you have is a disconnect between the financial markets and the real economy, and um, you know, there's a lot of people who, are, who have been very confused by the stock market uh, and how it's bounced, you know, the S&P's bounced 600 points off the lows. And, you know, they say, look, we're going to be in this very deep 18-month recession. It's going to take a long time to come out of. Why are stocks so high? Uh, valuations are still high. And, um, you know, kind of getting back to your earlier point, um, I mean, the Fed is explicitly supporting... Uni bonds, corporate bonds, high yield bonds, the treasury market, the mortgage market. And in doing that, it's kind of implicitly supporting the stock market. And that's, you know, and it's funny if you look at, if you look at the bond market, you know, they're buying high yield, but um, there's some bonds that they're buying and there's some bonds that they're, that they're not. So the bonds that they're buying are trading at 4% yields and the bonds that they're, bu- they're not buying are trading at 10% yields. And it just goes to show that there's parts of the markets that are being supported and parts that aren't, and it's leading to this, you know, bifurcation. Um, And that's really causing most of the confusion. And from the economic standpoint, like, yeah, we will probably have an 18-month recession. You know, uh, I try to focus uh, on, you know, the Fed is the easiest institution in the world to predict. They're super easy to predict, and people get focused on instead of what they will do. Okay, and there's a lot of there's a lot of commentators out there who you know they say, well, this they're creating moral hazard, and this is morally wrong, and they're focusing on what they should do instead of what they will do. So I tr- I try to focus on what they will do, and in, in terms of policy tools, they have. A couple of things left, they have negative interest rates and they have buying equities. Those are the last two things that they haven't done. And my suspicion is that if we sell off to the previous lows of around 2200
2: in the S&P, you'll see those policy tools come out. Yeah, so with that, I was reading on a Gallup poll that um, going into 2008, you had I think it was about 63% of Americans were invested in stocks. Now it's around 50%. And that dramatically dropped the younger the participants are. So my concern is looking long-term. If you have a stock market that's going up, high unemployment rate, high unemployment rate amongst the youth who are not participating in the stock market, and then you get President Trump saying stock markets going all-time highs, you're going to have a further disconnect of young people who appear to be not involved in the stock market rally and simply don't have work or this prospect of work. Is that a demographic concern or a sociological concern from your point of view?
1: Yeah, that's a very long-term concern. I mean, you know, millennials have always been underinvested in stocks. Millennials actually like real estate a lot. They're big investors in real estate and they're also investors in crypto. Um hmm. So it's just it's just sort of generational preferences. I mean, I think as, you know, millennials are actually getting kind of old. I think the oldest ones are around 37 or 38 now. But I think as that bulge uh, kind of moves through uh, the population, uh, I think you'll see more participation in stocks over time. It was a little different with my generation. You know, I started investing when I was 23. And, um, it, you know, I was... You know, I was being told that I had to start saving for retirement early. I had to invest in index funds. I had to be saving 20% of my paycheck. And, you know, when I was uh, 24 years old, I had, you know, a decent amount of money saved up in mutual funds. You know, that's what I did. I don't think the millennials do that.
2: No, you're right. They are investing in crypto and Bitcoin. And, um, yeah, that's pretty, there's a lot of research on to confirm that. Bessa, um you were had some very strong opinions about Bitcoin. Um and then you changed those opinions. Can you just tell us about that journey, please?
1: Yeah. Um you know, I was I was definitely a late adopter. I was, you know, hearing I was hearing things about Bitcoin for a long time and never acted on it. And then sometime in 2017, towards the end of 2017, um, I could tell that um I'll just tell you a quick story. I had, um, I had a girlfriend from middle school. <laughs> she, my eighth grade girlfriend, and she's, she's, you know, she's been divorced twice and she teaches piano lessons and she gets alimony and she sent me a Facebook message and she asked me, should I buy Bitcoin? Okay. And this was when it was around 3000 and I, you know, I told her, no, I said, I, cause this is a bubble, right? Like if your eighth grade girlfriend who teaches piano lessons is asking about Bitcoin, it's, it's a bubble. And then it, then it went up to 7,000. And then um, my wife's best friend's 14 year old son bought Bitcoin. And I was like, what is the world coming to? And it was, it turned, it turned into this giant bubble. And, you know, I don't, I don't participate in bubbles. I don't, maybe I should. Um so my objection to it wasn't really the the technology or the blockchain or anything like that my objection was um just i uh, just the fact that it was a you know it was it was a speculative bubble just like we you know like i'd seen in dot com just like i'd seen with the housing bubble um and then when prices started to come back down then i started getting interested in it again
2: so um that's 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 really that's really what it was so so what was the intellectual flipping there where, okay, this isn't a bubble. This is something I actually need to start looking into. Uh,
1: you know, probably, I, I don't, I'm not really, I'm not really sure what that point in time was. Um, like I said, I was very late on this and I was experiencing regret and actually um, there was a friend of mine who was an early investor in ripple and I remember him telling me when when Ripple was, you know, fractions of a penny um, about, you know, Ripple's role in the payment system and I should get involved in Ripple. And, you know, there's actually there's like this theory that people don't buy things until they hear about it six times. Some people have to hear something six times before they buy something. And I just never got over that threshold. So there was a part of me that literally just experienced regret because, you know, because I believed in the technology, but I just, you know, couldn't get over the hurdle. So I don't know, you know, that's, that's what I eventually did.
0: So was your regret not buying Bitcoin or was your regret buying Ripple?
1: Uh, Not buying, not buying Bitcoin.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just, I just wanted to clarify. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Do you want to learn how to safely buy and securely store your Bitcoins? Coincompass.com is running a free two hour webinar on Sunday, 31st of May. To register and for more details, visit CoinCompass.com forward slash webinar. Yeah, so I mean, there's still a lot of very strong anti-Bitcoin and pro-Bitcoin arguments out there. And we, we tend to avoid them because we think people just get a bit too emotive. But why do you think there is such strong emotive arguments about Bitcoin?
1: Well, from my standpoint, you know, I'm a gold investor. I have, I have a very high allocation to gold. And I have, I have for a long time and um, it's Bitcoin kind of, it raises some interesting questions about value. Right. And my criticism of Bitcoin was that, you know, just because something is scarce doesn't mean that it's valuable. So what makes something valuable? You know, gold is scarce, but why does gold have value? Well, gold has had value for 4,000 years. I mean, it's just, it's just ingrained in the human psyche. Um, So I kind of was, I kind of was stuck on, well, you know, I understood the scarcity argument um, and I understood the supply demand dynamics, but I couldn't understand why literally lines of computer code had value. So that was the part that I was stuck on for a long time.
2: And what made you decide
1: that it didn't have value? Um, well, actually, it probably, um, I'm not, I'm, I'm still, I'm still not really sure. I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, I don't know.
2: I don't know the answer to
1: that question.
2: <laughs> now, the reason I ask is we tackle this a lot. So what we do is we actually do sit down with people and we have to explain the basics because Bitcoin has been around for 10 years and a lot of people are still struggling to understand the, the basic fundamentals about it so yeah that's why i asked and you know a lot of people say oh if it's written down it's um not worth anything it's like well there's cave man paintings in indonesia thirty thousand years old you know that's thirty thousand years it's been there you knew someone was there set proof of work so that's that's why we ask because um, we come across these questions we like to prep for them yeah
0: So, just going into that uh, gold versus Bitcoin, is it still gold or Bitcoin? Gold and Bitcoin, or is 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 Bitcoin just complementary? Or what's your what's your thoughts there?
1: Um, I think you have to look at it from a risk standpoint. You know, I, and I've been a portfolio manager, so um, I look at everything on a risk-adjusted risk basis. You know, I'm comfortable holding a ten percent position in gold whereas I'm only comfortable holding a 1% to 2% position in Bitcoin because of the volatility, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, gold gold isn't, it's not that volatile, and you, it's, it's just that you can it can easily have it in a portfolio. So the answer is gold and Bitcoin, um, but you just have to sort of risk weight the assets.
2: Right, Jared, you said you think you're a late adopter. Who are you comparing yourself to if you're a late adopter? Because well, I don't think you are.
1: Okay. Well, yeah. People tell me that. Um, yeah, I, you know, I have a, I have a friend that I do music with, uh, I DJ with him occasionally. And he was, he was what I would call an early adopter. He was buying Bitcoin at about a hundred dollars and ended up selling it between 500 and a thousand. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes if I replay that tape and I think about, well, what if I had bought it at a hundred dollars, I probably would have already sold it, you know? So, um, So, so now I just have a completely different perspective.
2: Absolutely. Like we've got tweets that we've saved where people still want to say, that's it. I can't handle Bitcoin's volatility anymore. I'm getting out at $12. (laughs) Um, So within the finance industry, um, so what you described to me was a trailblazer if someone hits in net early, but I think you're, you know, still a trailblazer in the finance industry, because there's not that many people in your industry who are actually making a foot to Bitcoin. They're pretty anti Bitcoin still, aren't they? Um I think
1: I think people are definitely warming up. Um I would say the traditional finance industry, if you go back to 2017, 2018, was um, really against was really against Bitcoin. Um, but I think, today, I think today people are warming up to it and it's also, it's starting to behave um, more like a traditional risk asset. Um, it's been, it just in the last couple of months, it's been more high, highly correlated with equity prices. It's sort of behaving as a risk asset. Um, and, and also the volatility hasn't been as bad Um, Mm -hmm. But I I do think it's
2: maturing. And I
1: think, you know, that'll attract more people over time.
2: Yeah, we actually just posted a video about this, how I think Bitcoin's being a leading indicator to um, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500 and the VIX chasing these open gaps. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, And that we think is still a largely, people misunderstand Bitcoin story, Bitcoin story value. It's a way to make a quick buck at the moment is how we think a lot of these people are seeing
1: it. Yeah. I mean from, from my standpoint, like I said, it's all about it's about risk adjusted returns. And as the volatility comes down a little bit more, I'd be more comfortable, you know, having a bigger allocation to it. So
0: And is it just about the volatility? So for example, to get you from a say one percent or five percent in a portfolio, is it purely the volatility or do you need to see more adoption or other things? No, it
1: it really, it really is just about the volatility. Yeah. Because one of the things I talk about on my radio show with personal finance is that if you, if you want to talk about asset, asset allocation um, you know, if you go back 20 years, 30 years, people said that you should have an allocation to, to bonds and your allocation to bonds should approximately be your age. So if you're 70 years old, you should have a 70% allocation to bonds and a 30% allocation to stocks. And that's because as you're getting closer to retirement, uh, you can't stand the volatility that a higher percent allocation of stocks has. But in this last bull market, you know, from 2017 to 2020, people greatly increased their allocation to stocks. Whereas, you know, you had baby boomers walking around with 80, 90, 100% allocations to stocks. And that's just that's just the wrong
2: asset allocation. So, with that, was a flipping to stocks simply because you weren't getting the yield that you used to be getting in bonds? Say that again. With the flipping to stocks, like more people buying stocks, is that because you're actually getting more yield out of owning stocks from dividends than the yield you're getting on the coupon in bonds? Uh, there's
1: not. I mean, yes and no. I mean, definitely, with interest rates being so low, it forces people further out the risk curve um, but you know towards the end, it really became about performance chasing you know from two thousand nine to two thousand nineteen you know stocks were returning nineteen percent a year, and uh you know i I don't really want to call it a bubble, but it really drew it sucked a lot of people in, and there was there was just this perception it was basically like you know, beta became the new income, right? Like people couldn't get income from their fixed income investments. So they were kind of getting income from beta. And that's that's really the phenomenon that happened. So All
2: right. so we've got a hell of a lot of things happening in the world right now. But if you look at this, at the charts, you wouldn't think so. Um, elections coming up in the US next year. What to you is your biggest concern right now that people don't know about or aren't paying attention to like, you know, thinking of CDOs in 2008, all that kind of stuff. What's to you, this is the, this, this is the earthquake that I'm a bit concerned about in the uh, financial plumbing. Yeah, I definitely have an answer for that. So
1: the thing that concerns me the most is this discussion about punishing China economically for uh, releasing the virus out into the rest of the world. And, one of the things that's being discussed is actually defaulting on bonds, interest, and China doesn't own a lot of U.S. debt; they own about a trillion dollars, which is pretty small relative to the amount of debt outstanding, but it's it's still a lot. And um, that has that has the potent, the potential to completely change the world as we know it has the potential to change international relations. It has the potential to change international trade. Uh, people will only trade with trading partners that they trust. Um, you have the potential for, you know, I'm thinking out long term, five to 10 years, but you have uh, the potential for countries to selectively default on debt that's owed to their enemies. Um, it's just a Pandora's box that you do not want to open. Um, and it, 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 it even, uh, you know, increases the likelihood of a military conflict. So, um, you know, this is, this has only happened in the last couple of days, but this is the thing that scares me the most. Wow. Okay.
0: Uh, sorry, from a non-investor, uh, economic point of view, uh, from an IT guy, are you talking about the first country default on the debt will cause a cascade, a house of cards, or are you talking about. a a total, you know, debt jubilee for all countries?
1: No, not a a debt jubilee for all countries. I mean, specifically what the U.S. is talking about doing is just refusing to pay interest in principle on debt held by China. But the problem is is the precedent that it sets. Um, And, I mean, look, like, you know, Trump is the first president to use economic power as a weapon um rather than uh diplomacy or military force so he likes to so he did this he did this with the tariffs okay and um using us economic power as a weapon and this is just another extension of that but you know countries don't default on their debt except for in rare cases like argentina which is a serial defaulter and stuff like that but uh you know you don't
2: intentionally default on your debt so well, the IMF doesn't let you do it. They just give you a higher credit limit. Yeah. Um, uh, that's it for questions from me um, on the macro stuff, of course. you have anything else?
0: No. I noticed that you um, got a bachelor in computer science. Is that right?
2: Yeah, math computer
1: science. Yeah.
0: Oh well. Wow. So you didn't obviously you didn't pursue that field. Um, are you still keeping up with programming and? all this uh, blockchain technology?
1: No, I was a very bad computer science major. It was a split degree. Okay. It was computer science and math. And you could focus on one or the other. I for, I mostly focused on math. Uh, I got Bs in my computer science classes. So it's, you know.
0: But at least that, that would have helped you some way, you know, uh, some sort of poker system or some uh, card counting or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I've, I've done... I'm not very good at it. By the, a lot of people think card counting is easy. It's actually very hard. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of practice. I've tried. So I don't have that kind of patience.
0: Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> okay. Um, so just going back to defaulting on debt, uh, for example, the U.S. default on debt with China. Um, have you been following the, I guess, the, the innovations in the digital currency in China apparently weeks away from their implementation of the digital yuan?
1: No, I haven't heard about that.
0: Okay. Yeah, they just released some... I mean, it's on the internet, so it must be true. But they just uh, (laughs) released some uh, screenshots of a a digital yuan, and an app. And yeah, it looks pretty pretty legit. And they say it's about a a month away. So Mm. that'll be pretty interesting.
2: So actually, Jared, being a gold guy, what's your opinion on the uh, Shanghai Gold Exchange and the um, Gold One oil trade with uh, Iran and Russia? Uh, you gotta, you have to educate me on that. I'm not really sure what you're talking about. Uh, so China set up a an a gold exchange where you can buy and sell gold, but it's only physical gold, no derivatives, no leveraging. And the trade that they set up with Russia and Iran was: we'll buy um, oil from you guys pay, instead of paying you in U.S. dollar because they're trying to get off the U.S. dollar, pay you in Chinese renminbi. But you can convert that renminbi to gold, which is why China's been buying gold in abundance for the last 10 years.
1: Uh, it's, it makes sense. I mean, it seems like a pretty smart way to get off the dollar. I mean, it's like, you know, physical gold is hard as we saw with, um, you know, the the COMEX futures and the delivery problems that they had, you know, once the virus hit. So, um, I mean, look like for for, you know, centuries, you know, that's how we settle transactions. We, we know we sent ships around with gold, you know, so it can be done. But um, it's, 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 a little bit,
2: it's a little bit clunky. So Yeah, if only there was an electronic safer version out there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, on that note, do you put any faith in these, stable, these sort of new stable coins? So I heard the other day there's um, a gold pegged or gold collateralized, you know, kind of like a tether for, for gold.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I guess, like, for for me, like, I don't think I need that extra step, you know, Um, like, you know, Bitcoin is fine, gold, I don't, I I, I think gold-backed, you know, crypto is just like, I think it's a little bit, I'm not that paranoid, let's put it that way, so.
2: Yeah, I agree with you on that one, it's unnecessary.
0: So, if someone's listening to this and they're kind of on the fence about Bitcoin. What would you say to them?
1: Um, I mean, the way I look at it as a trader, you know, as somebody who spent you know nine years in the capital markets, I look at things in in terms of supply and demand. I look at terms of things and flows, mm-hmm. and you know, there's 21 million Bitcoin. 18 million have already been mined. A whole bunch of them have been lost. So maybe there's 13 million outstanding, and it doesn't take a really big increase in demand or adoption to send the price up a lot. It really doesn't, you know? Mm. Uh, I mean if, so it's, that's, that's kind of what I'm waiting for. Um, it, it's all based on supply and demand dynamics. So.
0: You're waiting for, yeah. what, sorry, for like mainstream adoption or wall street adoption. Well,
1: let's say semi mainstream adoption,
0: you know, well, there's only $3 million left. I've got to get in quick. <laughs>
2: cool. All right, well, thank you very much for your time today, Jared. Now, from a someone, as you proclaim to be a late adopter of Bitcoin, which I don't think you are, um, I still think you're in the vanguard there. Do you have any questions for us from a Bitcoin perspective? Because this is what we cover every day. So we've asked you a lot of questions. <laughs> Anything you want to know from our end? Um.
1: I mean I have a ton of questions. Um, I was actually I was actually talking to a Coast Guard Academy classmate last night who is uh, who started a crypto fund and um, you know he's um, he's invested in Bitcoin but some of the other altcoins and I just don't know the altcoin universe that well. You know, just being sort of plugged into Bitcoin Twitter there's all these fights about, you know, altcoins and all this stuff and like everybody yells at each other, and I, like I, I kind of don't understand it, you know like um, so <laughs> there's there's a lot of things about crypto Twitter I, I don't understand, um, but I just kind of like a casual observer, so that's the
2: safest place to be. <laughs> Yeah, no, we get asked that often. And one of the presumptions for people is that oh, I can't afford $9,000 for Bitcoin, I'll buy something else. Without understanding that you can buy $20 worth, you know, there's eight decimal points to a Bitcoin. Yeah. So that divisibility is something we have to explain to people. And, yeah, you know, we found a lot of people went to the altcoins because they thought they can afford Bitcoin. Is, is literally that's the only reason? No, that's not the only reason. Um, one was just the return factors. People thought, oh, "If Bitcoin went up three thousand percent, let me jump on something new mm-hmm. with the anticipation of up three thousand percent as well." Not understanding, as you just mentioned, the denominator value that, um, like Ripple has three, four billion Ripples out there, um, and same with all these other coins. A, they're you know they're they're not limited in supply, but also the network effect. Who's behind these coins? Because um, with bitcoin you 've got the world 's leading crypto um, cryptographic scientists, computer engineers working on bitcoin
0: yeah there are there are three kinds of cryptos there 's bitcoin there 's ethereum and then there 's everything else that 's basically how it goes um, but Bitcoin suffers from that uh, unit bias as well because I mean a, a lot of people and i 'm not joking went on to coinbase, the uh, most popular Exchange of the world, and they say Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin SV, da da da. And they just buy something cheaper, and they're like, oh, well, I can uh, buy 0.1 of Bitcoin, as Farah said, or I could buy, you know, four Bitcoin Cash or 10 Bitcoin Cash or whatever it was. So um, it wasn't just the unit, it was also the name and the branding as well. There's, you know, 20, 20 or 30 different uh, copies of Bitcoin and name as well. So hmm. it's pretty confusing. Yeah. And Bitcoin.com, Bitcoin.com is not Bitcoin. So
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't have the 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 time to evaluate uh, all all this
2: other stuff, you know. So um yeah, we recommend you don't. It's like with Bitcoin mining, people I want to understand Bitcoin mining. It's like nah, no you don't. You get on a plane, you know the fundamental mechanics of how a plane takes off. But you don't actually have to look on the hood every time you get under on, on the plane. So same thing with Bitcoin mining. There's a lot of things that you think you should know, but you don't really. You don't really have to.
0: Yeah. Just understand the fundamentals and don't be scammed. The only reason why I ever bought altcoins was to trade them against Bitcoin so that I could accumulate more Bitcoin in the end. So, mm-hmm. but you know, you get burnt. Some some of these are liquid. Old coins, you get burnt pretty quickly cuz you can't you can't sell at the price you want to sell at so uh yeah just uh, buy bitcoin and hold it
2: oh jared we are very grateful for you joining us today like i said i'm a big fan of your work and your twitter feed now just uh, tell our audience um and we'll put some links in our notes where where can people find you where do you want to direct them
1: uh you can find me at um dailydirtnap.com that's my newsletter that's my primary business um i think people would enjoy the newsletter so dailydirtnap.com uh the radio website is jareddillionmoney.com so
2: yeah and you can follow me on twitter at daily Dirt fantastic well again jared thank you very much for your time we're incredibly grateful
0: thank you thanks jared much appreciated thanks for watching or listening please visit coincompass.com slash free to register to our socials and discover other free content. Subscribing, liking, and following helps this content remain ad-free. Until next time.